Hello and welcome to Being Well. If you're new, on this podcast we explore the hard parts of being human and the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back! Between quarantine and our ever more electronically plugged-in world, today more of us communicate through electronic screens than ever before. Pair that with rising political polarization and the complexities that come from having an increasingly thin line between our public and private lives, and it's no surprise that studies show that Americans feel less connected and more divided than ever before. There are many, many hard conversations happening these days, and I for one have often felt like the more I talk with people I disagree with, the worse things get. That's why I'm so happy to be joined today by an award-winning journalist and professional speaker who's built a career on having tricky conversations, Celeste Headley. In her 20-year career in public radio, Celeste appeared on NPR, PRI, CNN, the BBC, and an absolute alphabet soup of other international networks. She's been the executive producer of the Daily Talk Show on Second Thought for Georgia Public Broadcasting, and anchored shows including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition at NPR. She also served as co-host of the national morning news show The Takeaway, and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. Celeste is also the author of two wonderful books, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Her TEDx talk based on We Need to Talk, sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation, has over 30 million total views to date, which is an absolutely crazy number. So Celeste, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Great introduction. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Yeah, I tried to cover all the bases. Yeah, you did. I mean, I started saying that I'm pandemic okay Hmm. because I'm okay within within all the basic caveats (laughs) of the kind of dumpster fire we're all living in right now. But yeah, that said, I'm okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm glad that you are pandemic okay. I might actually start to steal that language. I think that that's great language. It really kind of summarizes the whole mess right now. Because it's true, even like very simple questions, like how are you doing, have this whole other level of complexity associated with them these days. Yeah, there's a whole uh, sort of undercurrent going on. I mean, you can say I'm okay, but kind of in your mind, you're thinking through those caveats, I'm okay, but Okay doesn't mean the same thing it did in 2019. So Yeah, yeah, well said. Okay doesn't mean the same thing it did last year. That is absolutely true. So it's really, really great to have you here. I'm so glad that you took the time out of your day to do this. And I would love to just start kind of with your experience here almost, as you've already sort of started to share. Um, You've spent most of your life having complicated, nuanced conversations with people of various kinds, whether it's answering whether or not you're okay during a pandemic or it's much more loaded stuff. What were you seeing, whether it was in like your personal life or your professional life, that motivated you to write We Need to Talk? I mean, the most, uh, the most obvious motivator was that I had just in 2009 gotten my first job as a full-time national radio host, and I wanted to get better at it. I just wanted to mm, get better mm-hmm. at interviews. And you know, an interview is just basically a formal conversation. Yeah, totally. So I went and did all the, re- you know, look, I work for NPR, or <laughs> I did. And so when you have a question, you go- hit the library. And <laughs> well, I love that culture. That's great culture. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but the thing was, is that all of the advice was really terrible. And, hmm. and I'd been hearing it my whole life, that same advice we all get, summarize what you just heard from the other person and nod and, you know, maintain eye contact. I had the opportunity because I was hosting a four hour daily news show to test it, 
right? I could say, okay, I'm going to try doing this, um, nodding and saying, "Uh uh-huh, and we'll see if it makes things better. And just all the advice made things, if they didn't make them worse, they certainly didn't improve anything. And it just made me think, well, (laughs) what do we actually know? I mean, scientifically, evidence-based, what do we know about human conversation? And it just led me down a whole unexpected path with some surprising answers. And so that's what led to We Needed Talk was I was like, listen, I checked it out. A lot of what you've been told is BS. So let's talk about what's actually true. So you've, as as a true radio professional, you've cued me into like five different questions <laughs> that I could ask here. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, yeah. So you've, as you said, you included a lot of like great practical advice in your book for how to have better conversations. But you've already alluded to it, so I'd love to start with just kind of what doesn't work, some of the BS that you were talking about. There's obvious advice that's given, whether it's like maintain eye contact or summarize or go mm-hmm really intently. And that's all well and good. That's like obvious advice. But what do you see a lot of people doing that's maybe really well-intentioned but ends up being just not tremendously effective? Like the, the most important one is, is this fundamental mi- mistake that we make in understanding. So we think that we are good conversationalists because we tell good stories and we're funny and we tell jokes and we're engaging. That's a good talker. That's not a good conversationalist. To be a good conversationalist, you have to be as good at listening as you are at talking. And in fact, improving your talking skills can get in the way of conversation. Research shows that the smarter you are, for example, the worse you are in conversation for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. So (laughs) as you improve, you know, people are, you know, people come to me all the time and say, tell us five things people should say when they're on a first date. I don't know. Don't listen to me. (laughs) Like the whole point is that you're supposed to be listening so well and so carefully that you are naturally engaged in the conversation. If you come prepared with stuff to say, you're literally not listening. So mm, that's, the, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's one of the most fundamental mistakes that we make is, you know, we have all, you go to school and they have all these public speaking courses available. When the fact of the matter is, is as homo sapiens, it's the, not the speaking we have trouble with, it's the listening. Mm. I mean, Celeste, you're you're coming straight from my heart at the very beginning of the conversation here, because if there's one thing that I think that sometimes I have an issue with, it's too much talking and not enough listening. So if uh, if I need to frame something and put it on my wall, that might already be it for starters here. We all do. I mean, look, it's a work in progress. I talk too much, too. I I feel you. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And it it kind of something you said there that really stuck out to me is the... um, I framed it kind of like smart people problems, which I don't know if that's quite the right way to put it, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. My guess is that most of the people who listen to this podcast, it's like a pretty high-minded, personal development-y podcast. We cover a lot of research and data on the show. I'm really into research and data. There's like an evidence basis for a lot of what we do. We're fortunate to have a really thoughtful group of listeners. And I think that most of the people who listen think of themselves as being both good conversationalists and pretty smart. So now that I've done kind of flattering everyone, one of my favorite parts of your book explores exactly what you're talking about, which is uh, the pitfalls that people think of themselves as being uh, good conversationalists or maybe even worse, quote unquote, good debaters uh, can fall into. So what are some of those like smart people problems? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is that we think intellect inoculates us from all kinds of personal interrogation. 
One of the, the worst is that smart people tend to think they're less prone to unconscious bias when it's exactly mm-hmm. the opposite. In fact, the higher your IQ goes, the more biased you are likely to be. There's a hmm. number of reasons for that, but let me go into the reasons why your high IQs make you a bad conversationalist. Yeah. Uh, the first is that human beings in general, everyone, smart, dumb, in between, we um, unconsciously choose not to listen to people who are of lower rank than us. And I'm using lower rank in the broad sense of it. If we think someone is, is dumber than we are, they have a worse job than us. However your unconscious mind determines, says rank, if they are lower than us, we don't listen to them in general. Um, instead, we decide, usually unconsciously, that it's our duty to enlighten them and correct them and teach them something. And when you're teaching, you're not listening. So that's a big reason why smart people are terrible listeners. It's because they're basically just not listening to a gigantic swath of the population. Um, The other one is that smart people tend to know a lot, right? We know interesting stuff. And so we want to share it. (laughs) And so we want to talk about that stuff (laughs) that we know. And, you know, you may find that you end up telling the same facts or information over and over and over again. That's an early warning sign that maybe you're talking too much and you're a little bit too enthusiastic about sharing what you know rather than learning what other people know. Hmm. And the third thing, there's more reasons than this, but these are the main ones. The third reason why smart people have trouble in conversation is that we assume we know what's coming. So someone will say something like, well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm totally against immigration. Okay. So a smart person goes, I know the rest of what this person is going to say. And they stop mm-hmm. listening to that person. And they're mm-hmm. just coming up with what their response will be to that. Right. The problem is, is that people are not talking points, right? That you don't actually know what that person is going to say. And they may not, maybe they're reciting something they heard on a TV show or whatever, but their actual beliefs and thoughts are way more complicated and nuanced and frankly, interesting. And if you were to actually follow through with follow-up questions, if you were to ask them about how do you know, what is your source, where does this come from, you might end up having a really enlightening conversation rather than the Mm. one that you assume that you're having. I think that you've said so much already that is right on the money and that I really want to kind of like dig into and pull apart a little bit here. Um, the the first thing is that idea of like unconscious bias and who is or isn't immune to it. And the yeah. truth is that none of us are immune to it. But thinking about those issues of rank that you were talking about, um, we've had several conversations on the show with experts on racial bias of various kinds. And racial bias is another way that rank enters our perception of other people's speech. Yeah. So if you're talking to somebody who's from a minority background, you're from a majority background, Uh, there's a tendency to have an unconscious bias there. Another is classist issues. If you're talking to somebody who you believe, as you were kind of alluding to with job, is from a different class than you, even just very subconsciously, like talking to the janitor, there's going to be a natural tendency to kind of disregard elements of what the person's saying. And and I think that really what what you're talking about here as a whole is just getting into like the truth and core of somebody else's experience and letting that stand on its own separate from just like looking at their ideology. Does that more or less jive with what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, in fact, I'm, mm. I'm working on a book right now that's called We're All Racist. Um, mm. <laughs> because, I mean, like it or not, 
every single one of us makes assumptions, sometimes even positive assumptions like the model minority about other people based on what we perceive their race to be. And research shows that the smarter you are, as we were saying, the more susceptible you are to bias. In fact, one study that I read on this subject said, if anything, a larger bias blind spot was associated with higher cognitive ability. Mm. We have blind spots because again, we think we're inoculated. The same Mm -hmm. way that somebody, you know, I'm mixed race, I'm black and Jewish along with a bunch of other things. And I would be absolutely doing myself a disservice were I to assume I'm so mixed, I can't possibly (laughs) be biased. Of course I'm biased. Mm. I'm sexist. I grew up in, in a sexist nation. And so I think sexist things. And the same thing with all kinds of biases. So yes, this is about understanding that you have these biases taking them as a given, and then allowing uh, a conversation to change you. It's the only Mm, way mm -hmm. you can make changes because the fact of the matter is you can't work on the unconscious bias. That's the problem. Even people who are aware of their own biases have not been shown to be better at overcoming them. Really? That's so interesting. Yeah, I know, right? That is because, you know, this is obviously an estimate. We we can't track thoughts. But as far as we know, at least 98% of our thought is unconscious. It's Mm. like the system one, system two thinking of Daniel Kahneman, right? Most of our bias is a result of that very fast gut level system one thinking. And we can't touch that. It happens too quickly. It's your gut instinct. And that means you can't really work on it the way that you can things like, okay, I'm going to eat healthy foods. Let me work on changing my habits. It's not a habit you can change. It means that over time, the only way to make substantive changes in these kind of things is to allow yourself to be changed by what you hear. And the only way we've been able, sort of been able to track this actually happening in conversations is through empathic bonds. When you're making an empathic connection with someone else who disagrees with you, then there's the opportunity for for change in your attitude and your beliefs. That's really interesting. I just to uh, ask a question and also kind of like offer what a guess is, but I would I would love your expertise to be brought to that guess. My assumption is that we can become better at applying kind of top down regulatory skills toward our biases. Like we can get better at noticing when a bias arises in the mind, or we can get better at trying to like edit our behavior around different populations of people based on our understanding of our unconscious biases. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. In fact, you know, racism isn't generally a values problem. We address it Mm. from the values point of view when there's not really that much we can do to change anybody's values, including our own. You can change your behavior and processes and policies. Mm -hmm. And eventually that might change values. Yeah. We don't know. And we can try to educate. Yeah. And we can try to educate people around having more, uh, more egalitarian values or, you know, taking, not taking away the humanhood of other beings just because the color of their skin is different and, you know, natural stuff like that. But I think to your broader point, values re-education is really, really challenging. This is way back when, but I actually did my senior thesis at Berkeley Mm -hmm. on communication trends in presidential elections. And my advisor on the thesis was a guy named George Lakoff, who wrote the book. Do not think of an elephant. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, don't think of an elephant. There you go. Awesome. So, so yeah, and like to kind of summarize that for the audience, like his whole kind of take to really, really oversimplify it is that basically facts matter less than feelings, or maybe put a bit more accurately, what matters is people's frame structures. These are kind of the structures through which they view the world. 
And if a fact doesn't fit inside of a frame structure, the fact is not going to be absorbed by that person. It has to fit their pre-existing stuff. So for you know people who have very, very strong structures of pre-existing stuff, as we all do, as you're saying, the way that you change things is through that empathic connection and is through putting whatever language you use in the terms that that person can kind of attach to it. If you want to kind of think about it from almost a changing people's mind on stuff perspective, as many of us are trying to do these days around a wide variety of topics. Yeah, I mean, the thing to remember, and and I love Lakoff's work, yeah. the thing to remember is that if you ask David Duke, the former leader of the KKK, if he's racist, he'll say no. Mm, this is one mm-hmm. of the reasons that values education doesn't really work. It's because... <laughs> you're saying, well, don't be racist. And they're like, I agree with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Great point. I mean, don't there's a racist. lot of, yeah, right now there's a lot of conversation that looks like that online. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So instead you have to go to the actual processes of what you can do is say, all right, let's find what we agree on. Do we agree that everyone deserves the opportunity to live in dignity? Do we agree that everyone deserves um, the opportunity to be safe, to feel safe? I mean, there's a whole bunch of different statements and even political statements that the vast majority of Americans agree with. And in in fact, even if you look uh, worldwide, there are certain statements everybody agrees with. And there are things like children should be raised feeling safe, having the opportunity to play. It is that everyone has the the right to a, a dignified life, to the ability to rise through the income ranks, things like that. If you start there, then you can sort of work on, on, on how you see about bringing that about. Their opinions on how you bring that about may be quite different from yours. Yeah. But the fact of the, of the matter is, is that you probably agree on some very essential truths. And that's a great place to start. Okay, that's great. That's great advice. Like, I mean, you kind of start through joining to use a phrase that my dad, Rick, uses all the time, like start by joining inside of a conversation to create that experience of mutual empathy and find that common ground. I I do have a question about something that is rising in my mind here as you're talking. I think that a lot of people have the experience these days, and and I know that I just kind of like poo-pooed facts a little bit there by saying that facts tend to matter less to change people's opinions than feelings to an extent. But I think that a lot of people are having the increasing experience that facts just kind of don't matter. That scientific consensus on various issues is disregarded by large blocks of people. Uh, this show focuses on fact-based recommendations when I, when we can. Like I really care about whether or not a suggestion I make is backed in some form by hopefully pretty good social science research. And of course, there are limitations to that. But there are things that have an evidence basis and things that don't. And the first thing that I'm kind of asking here is that I would love to get your general take on this and what seems like an increasing disregard for facts and whether it's the political conversation or the social one. And then also when you're operating from just a wildly different fact basis from somebody else, how do you still have a good conversation with them without just like falling into a lot of both sides of them? Okay. So you've asked two questions. Let me take them in the order you've asked. Yeah. Thank you. Let's talk first about why we all disagree on facts. You know, the human species is the only one that's subject to confirmation bias. We're the only ones that suffer from it. And it makes sense because obviously if, you know, there's a gazelle and you tell the gazelle, don't go near that lake. There's a ton of crocodiles in there. And the gazelle's like, nope, I absolutely believe there are no crocodiles in that lake. 
and you showed video evidence of lots of crocodiles and they still didn't believe you, gazelles would disappear off the face of the planet, right? Like it's not mm -hmm, an mm -hmm. evolutionary strength. Yeah. We get away with it because we, we you know, dominate in other areas. Yeah. Otherwise, confirmation bias could absolutely crash us. And as Noam Chomsky says, you know, there, we don't, it's too soon to know if Homo sapiens is a viable species. <laughs> it's a great line. It's an amazing line. Yeah. I, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, you mm -hmm. get the idea. What we're really talking about here is metacognition. Metacognition is an ability to evaluate whether or not you're wrong. And it's incredibly rare. It is as rare in liberals as it is, is in conservatives. Let me tell you about one study in which they tried to test metacognition. They First, they tested people's political views just to see where they were on the spectrum. They weren't trying to figure out whether they were you know, liberals or conservatives. They were trying to figure out if they were opinionated or extremist, like how extreme were their political reviews? That's what they were mm, trying to find mm -hmm, out. Mm -hmm. Then they had everybody look at two different pictures and they said, guess which picture has the most dots on it? They had little polka dots all over them. Right. And then they'd ask, how confident are you in that opinion? So this is not an opinion on which there's a, a there are multiple answers. <laughs> there is a yeah. specific number of dots on the page. But what they found was that when people got the wrong answers, those who were on the extreme ends of the spectrum, whether it was liberal or conservative, they were less likely to decrease their confidence in their wrong answer. Mm hmm. Even though there was no way to, there's no spin. That's <laughs> just one yeah, has yeah. more dots than the other, right? So I want to quote what the researcher said. It was uh, yeah, a guy please. named Steve Fleming. He said, the metacognition of radicals plays a part in shaping their beliefs. In other words, they actually can't question their own ideas the same way mm. more moderate individuals can. That's what metacognition is. And metacognition can be worked on. That can be increased. You can learn how to increase your metacognition. It's just that the stronger your beliefs are, probably the less likely you are to be capable of it. So the reason that I think, I think this is just an opinion, it hasn't been tracked. The reason yeah, why sure. we're seeing more confirmation bias and less metacognition now than before is because politicians have been taking advantage of our confirmation bias now for decades. And we've now reached a tipping point where we, we can't even tell how many dots there are on the page, right? We mm. don't even know who to trust anymore. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. The second half of your question was, how do we talk to people? So you, the way you get through this conversation is you stop arguing about facts. A debate is not a conversation. You, you have to stop going into conversations trying to prove someone wrong or educate them or enlighten them because, number one, there's pretty much no evidence that you're going to be successful at that. And even if you prove someone wrong, they're just going to dislike you more. It's not like you'll change their mind, mm. right? I mean, when was the last time you had a conversation in which all of your facts were correct and you proved a point and the other person said, you're right, gosh darn it, you are absolutely <laughs> right about that. <laughs> I've changed my mind. Well taken. I, I don't know the last time that happened. It was if probably ever. about sports or something, if ever, you know, <laughs> right. like a relatively low stakes conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So you have to just stop trying to do that because it's pointless.
and instead find a way to create an empathic bond. And there are so many examples um, of people who have done this. There's even groups that talk people out of being members of hate groups. It's mostly younger white guys where they have learned how to talk them out of their membership in a hate group or another. And they will tell you, every single one of them will tell you, we don't argue with them. We don't Mm -hmm. argue facts. We just sort of make them belong. Sometimes when people belong to a hate group or, or any group that traffics in the hatred or exclusion of any others, um, it's from that need to belong to something. And belonging is the strongest need of our species after survival is taken care of. Yeah, totally. So if you can give them that feeling of belonging somewhere else, it's possible you can break them away from hate. I want to just put a little spotlight on a couple of different things that you said. Uh, The first is that, as people who've been listening to this podcast for any length of time probably know, I am a big believer in self-skepticism on basically every level, so I couldn't uh, co-sign your point about metacognition more strongly. I think that one of the more destructive features of human society is certainty. Um, You can apply that on a lot of different levels, and I won't go into all of them now also to save myself a (laughs) a little bit of criticism that could be flying at me if I do. But yeah, so I think that excessive certainty is something that we should be very, very scared of. Um, And particularly inside of our own thoughts and feelings and views, because that's what we can control a lot of. And then the second point is the point about belonging, which you just made, which I think, again, is so right on where it's really, really important to create something inside of conversations if you actually want to affect a view. And again, this is kind of from the work I did way back when. Um, I thought I was going to be a speechwriter when I grew up uh, back in college, and that's what I was kind of doing my degree in, it is you want to give people a sense of psychological safety. In other words, you want to make them feel safe moving their viewpoint. Yeah. And a lot of the time what happens is that the language that we create in conversations, exactly as you're saying, is that it can really trigger a very, very strong stance of defensiveness in somebody else. And so what we're really trying to do most of the time, if we really actually want to affect somebody's opinion, is move them as far away from that stance of defensiveness as we possibly can. And one of the best ways to do this, as you're saying, creating empathic attunement, earnest empathic attunement. You're not just doing it to manipulate somebody or doing it because you believe it. And then second, create a sense of safety. Make it safe for them to change their opinion. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I almost have nothing else to add to that. Mm. Because, you know, it's funny because years and years ago, I was asked to give the keynote at, um, I participated in the Racial Amity Conference for a long time, which was started, I I think, almost 100 years ago Mm. uh, by the Baha'i Faith to focus on the unity of races, what we have in common, e pluribus unum, right? out of many one. And I knew that the people who were at that conference are people who are already on board with this. <laughs> like you don't mm, go to mm-hmm. a racial amity conference if you're <laughs> a member of the Proud Boys. There's a little preaching to the choir happening. Right. Yeah. So my speech focused on um, making it okay for people to make mistakes, making it okay mm. for someone to ask to touch your hair if you're black. And not turning that into a a moment for shame, but turning it into a moment where you have suddenly be given the opportunity to make this a discussion in a way that people are not generally going to bring up race. You rarely get that opportunity, but 
suddenly mm-hmm. you have it. And I have to say, at least half the audience was not real happy with me because it's not what we want to hear, right? Especially in our age of outrage. We want to be able to stand on higher moral ground and explain this is why you're wrong. And I totally understand it. I mean, look, again, I am Black and Jewish. I get how dangerous it is (laughs) when people are clueless and when they say uh, insensitive things. I get that. I mean, the only thing I'm kind of missing is I'm not part of the LGBTQ community, right? Like that Mm -hmm. would totally Mm -hmm. make me check all the boxes. But all I'm trying to say here is that I could make that choice, but it would shut down conversation. I, mm-hmm. I would shut down a conversation that might actually bring about enlightenment. And that's a, it's a horrible waste. It's not always going to work. That's the thing. The conversation will not always work and you need to be open to failure there and be able to brush it off. The language of having a teaching moment, I think, is like pretty pregnant here, because that really feels like what you're talking about to an extent, like those opportunities to have teaching moments with people. Right. And to phrase it in a way where they can get it. Yeah. If you talk to most people, look, I've thought about race every day of my life since as far back as I can remember. Most Mm -hmm. white people do not think about race on a daily basis, right? Yeah, totally. But when I phrase it like that, like I wake up almost and it's on my mind. Or um, if you're a person that struggles with weight, think about how often you think about food every day, right? That's how often a black person thinks about race. Any way that you can phrase this in a way where people can make a connection to it, where it becomes relevant, that's Mm, when you start mm -hmm. sparking those neurons, right? And they might make new neural pathways and make new connections that may have not been possible before. So Celeste, I want to kind of follow your line here because I think we're getting into some really interesting territory. Um, You outline, as you mentioned, conversations uh, in the book between Black people and KKK leaders, or like people who really don't believe in their right to exist. You're talking about what's commonly held as a microaggression, touching a Black person's hair, saying, oh, can I touch your hair, kind of just in general, imposing on the the human space Mm -hmm. of a person of color uh, in a domineering way, as, you know, white people have done throughout history in a variety of different (laughs) forms and fashion. There's a lot of material there obviously, and a lot of generational trauma that's attached to that, that's very real. In your experience as somebody who's done this a lot, how can people who would maybe like like to approach conversations in the manner that you're describing, but there's a mental health component to it as well? Like, How do you preserve your own mental health when engaging with somebody who really thinks that there's a class distinction between you and somebody else and hoping to still have that kind of teachable moment conversation with them? I mean, you have to get consent Hmm. and you have to be aware. Number one, you have to check in with yourself. How am I feeling about this? Don't force yourself into this conversation. If somebody asks to touch your hair and you don't feel like talking about it, I totally get it. Just say, absolutely not. Hmm. And walk away. Right? But so here's the thing. Remember that feelings are not identity. Sometimes we identify ourselves by our feelings, and that's incorrect. Feelings are very transitory. They're very temporary. And you are feeling angry, but you're not angry. Um, You are feeling overwhelmed, but you're not overwhelmed. You are your own person who has these feelings that come and go. 
I say that because you can't actually control your feelings. You you can mm. kind of sort of think of feelings as being your system one thinking. You don't have a huge amount of control over them. But you can get in a lot of trouble if you feel angry and then begin to think, I am angry. And that identifying with these feelings, these things that are by their nature temporary, can get in the way of you having these conversations if you start thinking of yourself a certain way which is why i'm i it's so important to stay in that moment and check in with yourself right then do i want to have this conversation am i in the right frame of mind am i is it too late in the day am i too tired and then if you're asking the other person to get their consent understand that they're they hopefully are going through the same calculation and accept no if they need to walk away totally okay. It's not personal. It's not that they hate you. They could be doing going through the exact same sort of triage, mental health triage that you're going through in your... That's really fascinating, Celeste. And I, th I think that what it's making me think of is this idea that I really like, which is the difference between kind of responding to something and reacting to it. Yeah. You're basically describing just that in terms of system one, system two thinking, or like thinking fast and slow with Daniel Kahneman and all of that good stuff. And that separation of the kind of self, uh, the um, man, I'm struggling to articulate this, but like the strong core of the self versus the peripheral experience of the feeling mm -hmm. is, I think, such an important distinction and is actually a, a pretty um, a pretty sophisticated one. Like it's uh, my my dad, Rick, is is quite Buddhist. I identify as somewhat Buddhist. I am a Buddhist. Yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of almost a Buddhist belief of like separation from self and object a little bit. It is. It's very much so. And, and it's very freeing. It's mm. so empowering when you're not a victim of your feelings. When mm. you know that I'm feeling this right now, but that's not who I am. Um, mm -hmm. it, it really sort of helps you preserve the core of who you are. It helps you to interrogate your own identity, right? Because if you're not your feelings, then who are you? If you're not your thoughts. Wow. Yeah. Then who that's are deep. you? Yeah, I didn't mean quite mean to go quite this deep, but when we're talking about racial issues, the, yeah. what makes them so difficult, what I'm really getting at here is the difficulty of, of conversations about race, about politics, about sexual identity, any of that. The reason they're difficult is because we're talking about someone's identity. Mm -hmm. We're talking about who they are. And if you're going to have that conversation about your own identity, you need to know what that identity is. And it's not your feelings and it's not your thoughts. I, I want to kind of loop back to something that we were mentioning a little bit earlier, because it's not often that I get the opportunity to talk to somebody who's been in the kind of role that you've been in for a big chunk of your life. Um, as somebody who's been involved in the media and you are a really informed, thoughtful person. And you seem to care about uh, both people's individual viewpoints and also like some sense of kind of what's quote unquote true out in the world. And I guess I think that what I'm trying to articulate here is what I think frustrates people a lot when they watch the news, regardless of which side of the aisle they're sitting on, is you have two people who are kind of up on the screen and they're both espousing a viewpoint. And those viewpoints are presented as equal, even if they may not be. Like kind of getting back to what we were talking about before, it's sort of the both sides of something, right? Yeah. Where there's like certain things that just kind of have a fact basis and certain things that kind of don't. And it's all well and good to say, well, does it fit their frame? And does, you know, what is their value standpoint that's underlying that fact basis that they're operating from? 
But a lot of people just aren't operating in very good faith. Or they think they're operating in good faith, but their views have been kind of co-opted by something or someone or something like that. What have you seen of that kind of in your work? How have you responded to it? What's kind of your take on the on the both sides of them? Yeah, this is an ethical problem. It's not just an ethical yeah. problem for journalists, but it it has become a way to perpetuate racism, sexism, and yes. yeah, discrimination in all forms. So there's a few things that I've done. Um, when I launched my own show down in Atlanta, I immediately instituted a no pundit policy. Hmm. I do not talk, I do not interview pundits pretty much in any avenue of my journalistic life. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything against them as people, obviously, they're making a living. But a pundit by nature is someone who's asked for their opinion on pretty much anything, which means hmm. you're not getting an expert opinion. <laughs> you're just getting an opinion. <laughs> That's well said. I like that. That's awesome. And I, th that's worthless to me. It's worthless to me. I'm smart, but that doesn't mean you need to be asking my opinion about uh, the, a vaccine. Don't ask sure. me, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me about training a dog. <laughs> I've owned dogs, yeah, but totally. I'm not an expert, right? Mm -hmm. So consulting pundits who are financially incentivized to say things that are provocative and sometimes on the edge of truth yeah. is a terrible terrible plan. Mm -hmm. And sadly, at this point, much of cable news is in almost entirely pundit news, which means it's not news. Mm -hmm. This partly comes from my work with NPR and PRI and American Public Media and PBS, which is that we look for the person who's actually dedicated study and research and is at least on some level objective in that they don't have a stake in their opinion. Right? If I go speak to the head of, a, of, a, of a, a division at NIH, the National Institute of Health, they have literally been forced to divest themselves from any investment that's connected to their work, right? Mm. So that mm -hmm. person is absolutely the right expert to go and talk to. Somebody who works for a pharmaceutical company, probably not. But what I'm really talking about here is educated consumerism. I don't expect the average consumer of news to know who's an expert and who isn't. But I expect them to be at least aware enough of how good the news source that they're, that they're consulting is so that they can rely on them to make that decision, right? Mm -hmm. If you are watching a cable news show and they get it wrong, if they're constantly going to pundits, if there's no consequences when someone says something that's not factual on the air, then you probably shouldn't consult them anymore, even if they're telling you what you want to hear and it makes you feel good. I think that's great advice. Yeah, yeah that's on you. And stop getting your news from Facebook, full stop. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I, I guess what I'm, what I'm bumping my head against as I'm thinking about this, Celeste, is that you've given a lot of great advice on how to actually impact somebody's viewpoint if you want to do that form an empathic connection, think in terms of their underlying framework, don't argue, get bogged down in arguing about facts, create a safe space for them to change their opinion. Like if you've given a lot of consistently good advice here and speaking myself just like of my own frustrations, maybe kind of selfishly at the moment, but I, I'm just kind of bumping my head against the sensation of having conversations with people 
where they're using a bad source or yeah. they're quoting a conspiracy theory or they're, you know, proliferating some extremely unscientific opinion about something. And yes, people are, you know, prone to do this who are progressive and people who are prone to do this who are conservative. And for me, it's not so much like a, a liberal conservative question. It's like a uh, I don't know, evidence-based or not evidence-based question. And we can all get into an argument about like who leans more which direction. But inside of that context where like there is a lot of that frustration around facts, how do you talk with people about that? How do you kind of coach them out of that like narrow focus on, uh, but is it factual that I might be falling into here? So there's a few things that I do. One of the most important is I simply acknowledge the truth, which is that we're not going to agree, hmm. right? I'll say, so listen, we could spend all of our time here arguing over whether that's true or not. That's not mm. that interesting. So let me let me find out what we agree on. Mm. Sometimes I'll play the the common game, which is where I say, okay, I'm I'm I will bet you that in five questions I can find something we we both agree on. And it's usually mm. like tacos or dogs, <laughs> right? But you yeah. can start there. I mean, when you're talking about creating an empathic bond, finding, look, it sounds facile because it's something we've been taught since we were in kindergarten, right? Um, it's Sesame Street told us this from as far back as we can remember, but it absolutely is scientifically proven that finding those commonalities is the way to move forward. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever re uh, followed the account. Can I swear in this podcast? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Where That's called My Dad Says. Mm, it was like mm -hmm. a short-lived comedy series with William Shatner. So one of the things, one of the, the gems that his dad told him at one point is he said, you know, why are you focusing on the opinion of this dude that hates you? Like when you go on a picnic, you don't put your blanket down next to the only pile of dog. Mm. And this is how I feel about these conversations <laughs> is you don't have to focus on that one thing you don't agree on you can focus on something else. Hmm. Man, I think that there are, in our like human relationships with people, it's, I, I think to your point, it's a lot easier to do that than it is when you're getting into a shouting match on Facebook with somebody. I mean, proverbial shouting match. You don't right. literally shout, but you can normally tell when somebody is shouting when they're, when they're typing based on what they've said to you. Yeah. Um, and when you lack that human connection, it's just a lot more challenging to look past kind of the 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 narrow framework of somebody's like factual argument and and maybe by building more of that empathic connection and it becomes easier to do that. Yeah, and I mean I I can't say it I can say it to you in a million ways, but the truth yeah. of the matter is is that you know connections over social media are not authentic human connections. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're just not. And so don't bother. <laughs> 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 I mean <laughs> Pretty good advice, I would say. Pretty good advice. Don't bother. I mean, even, yeah. you know, some people say, well, it makes me feel good to at least write it. I'm like, you think that, but we don't actually, the, the most exhaustive studies we have show that Facebook makes you miserable. It just mm -hmm. does. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, you may think it's making you feel better. And maybe in that moment, as you're getting that shot of dopamine, it does. But it, it, taking the broader view over the long term, let it go. Yeah. No, there's, um, just to confirm what you're saying, there's exhaustive research that yeah. exposure to social media, particularly for long periods of time, makes people unhappier. Same thing for cable news. Uh, particularly same thing for cable news when they're depicting actually traumatic events. Uh, yeah. There was a really fascinating piece of research that found that people who watched footage 
of the Boston Marathon bombing for an extended period of time, watched coverage of it for like hours and hours, actually ended up just as symptomatic as people who were at the race. I think they might have actually been even more symptomatic in terms of PTSD rates and things like that. Um, so that kind of you know, secondary trauma or whatever that you can literally acquire from watching the news or going on social media or whatever is like a very, very real thing, just to confirm what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Just hit the X, people. <laughs> I, I'd love in the kind of little bit of time that we have left here, we really went into it there and I'm, I'm really glad we did. I think it was an awesome conversation. I'd love to turn toward Do Nothing, your other book. And I think that the whole title of it is really very provocative because you're somebody who's who's accomplished and you've done a lot in your life. We've talked about a lot of your co- accomplishments during this conversation. Why were you motivated to write a book about doing less inside of that context? Uh, because I literally hit the wall mm, in mm. my life. Like I was not planning to write this book. I was working on another book at the time but I hit a wall. I mean, I became irritable all the time. My sleep was disrupted. I got sick, like really sick Hmm, mm -hmm. with bronchitis and all kinds of things multiple times within a nine month span. And it just became very clear that my lifestyle was not making me happy and in fact was making me sick. And so that book started not as a book, but as a way to solve my own problem. Hmm, mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because when I do interviews about do nothing, <laughs> people think it's going to be a gotcha question when they say, you've written, you know, two books in, in a three-year span and you do all this other stuff and <laughs> you're not doing nothing. But the truth of it is, is here is the amazing part. By using the techniques that I suggest in the book, I actually, I have so much time to just sit around and do New York Times crosswords and like sit on my porch. Like I spend hours a day doing nothing productive or useful at all. But when you focus your habits in a way where you're making good use of your time, you can accomplish as much or if not more in way less time. Our habits Mm -hmm. right now that we think are more efficient, are they're just not. And that was Mm -hmm. a huge revelation for me. Um, and, And at some point when I realized that that my habits and my issue of being overwhelmed and stressed and feeling like I was always behind the eight ball, I realized it wasn't me. It was us. It was all my friends. It was all the people I talked to in the line at Starbucks. Yeah. And that's when it became a book. So I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of control over my time. Um, I'm largely self-employed and I, I have no kids, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, but most people don't have that, right? They're bound to a traditional 40, 50, 60 hour a week, capitalistically motivated work schedule. Um, this is often for an employer that isn't particularly invested in their mental health or personal development or whatever else. And this might be on top of raising a family, having a lot of obligations in the house, whatever else. Things that like take a lot of time and yeah. that it's hard to... Um, hard to avoid for for good reasons. Like we want to work, we want to, we need to make money regardless of whether or not we want to. We want to take care of our family, whatever else. So inside of that experience, where someone feels like they're just kind of overwhelmed by stuff to do, and they don't have a lot of control over their agency with using time the way they want to, what are some of the ways that people can actually find like real opportunities to do less, or at least feel like they're doing less? I'm glad you said at least feel like you do, you're doing less because that's a yeah. su- super important distinction. Mm. 
I absolutely understand that everybody doesn't have control over their work hours, which means you have to find the the opportunities you do have. One of the issues is that our solutions now, our our remedies right now are making it worse. So for example, Mm. when you get a, a, a 10 minute break at work, the vast majority of people immediately pull out their phone and start <laughs> paging through social media or doing mm, some online shopping. Mm-hmm. When the fact of the matter is, is neurologically, your brain does not make a distinction between that and work. So you haven't given yourself a break. Your stress level never got a chance to go down. Um, so this strategy that you're using to relax is not relaxing you. That's number one. The other thing is that regardless of how busy you are, um, you have five or 10 minutes. You have five or 10 minutes to set your smartphone down and take a walk around the block. Sometimes this, in fact, we know Homo sapiens is a pretty amazing and miraculous creature, right? We are so easy to heal in some ways. We take incredible benefit from looking at a tree, right? Like it has impacts that go beyond just cognitive, emotional, your heart rate slows down. Those small, it's called the power of weak ties, right? We think when I talk to Mm, people about mm -hmm. real human connection, they're thinking about that two hour conversation with their best friend, right? No, turns out that making eye contact and waving to somebody on the street also gives you this boost to your well-being. That mm-hmm. how's the weather that exchange that you have with your cashier at the grocery store also has a boost to your well-being, to your cognitive processes. That's the power of weak ties, as sociologists and psychologists call it. So you don't need a gigantic investment of time in order to start taking control of your own well-being. Mm. Just stop doing that stuff that's making it worse put your phone down. (laughs) (laughs) I think that honestly, like looking at both of your books and and reading through them, um, the consistent piece of advice that I found between both was put your phone down. Yeah. Just as you kind of offer at the end there, like those, those little ways that we find things that, frankly, again, to go a little Buddhist, that remove us from the present moment, whether that's the present moment of our interaction with another human, or that's the present moment of taking a minute to recharge and feel like we are taking a break and to let our brains slow down and just kind of sit there at the, um, at the, at the table in the lunchroom. And rather than kind of skimming through stuff that's mildly to majorly triggering, as often happens as we just like scroll through Facebook, you're just sitting there thinking nothing, or you're sitting there thinking about something you really enjoy, or you're sitting there and reading a slow book that you're just doing to have a good time. Like those are all little ways that maybe you can do nothing a little bit more. Does that more or less connect with what you're saying? Yeah, or call someone and don't talk about work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, great piece of advice. Yeah, I mean, any of those things, it's so, it can be so simple. And it's funny, I wrote a whole chapter in Do Nothing on is tech to blame? And I Mm. really tried to interrogate it. And what I found interesting when I was writing that chapter is three quarters of it is explaining all the terrible things, the, the terrible impacts that tech has on our lives and our sleep and our well-being. And yet it is not to blame. It's mm, not. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with the tech. It's how we use it. Yeah. Our, our species has been using tools. I think the oldest homo sapiens that we found was right next to a tool. Like that's how long... We've been using tools. 
Yeah. The problem is, is that when you get done using a hammer, you put it down, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And and we don't, we're not designed, our brains are not designed to hold a, a tool in our hands 24 seven. It's just yeah. not, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a great framework and a great way for people to think about their own interaction with screens. So Celeste, as we come to the end here, again, thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. And there is one kind of final question that we'd like to ask people who come on the show. I'm really interested in your thought on it. Based on everything that we've been talking about today, about talking, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child, as a young adult, somebody who was going through you know, probably some pretty challenging formative experiences as we all do, what would you want to say to that person? Like if you could leave them with anything, what would you want to leave them with? I would say um, most people aren't thinking about you. That's what I would say. They they don't they didn't notice you trip. They don't care if they did notice. Most people are thinking about themselves, and they're not worried about you. Yeah. No, I think that is a great piece of advice that I try to remind myself about to this day. So thank you for reminding me with that, Celeste. Before we get you out of here, is there anything else you would like to let people know about? Any other projects you're working on? Um, no, not really. I mean, the, the, the main thing, I, I just launched an online training course. The pandemic, one thing the pandemic allowed me to do is gave me some extra time and I created a whole training course in how to interview. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. I'm wow, I will, I will look at it. <laughs> I'm super excited about it because I get all passionate to talk about interviewing people. But yeah, that's sort of my new little passion. <laughs> awesome. Well, perfect. So topical. So again, Celeste, th just thank you so much for doing this today. This has really been great. I've totally enjoyed it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions. Today, I talked with Celeste Headley about how to have more productive conversations may be particularly related to the many charged topics that people are encountering these days. I thought that Celeste gave a lot of great advice, and to summarize some of it, separating truth from fiction does really matter out in the world. We should care about what's true and what isn't. Celeste worked at NPR for a very long time, and she talked passionately today about the value and importance of expertise. She also referenced research and statistics many times during our conversation. But facts generally aren't very good at changing somebody's opinion on a really charged topic. And they're particularly not good at changing somebody's opinion when those facts don't conform to that person's pre-existing biases. You, as a listener to this podcast, might have your opinion on something really changed by a new research article. But that's because you have a pre-existing value placed on that form of information. I do too. I love research, and I love really knowing what is truly validated out in the world, but some people, for better or worse, place value in other forms of sourcing. And of course, that isn't my preference, but if my goal is really to change somebody's view on a charged topic, I need to operate in the terms of their frames. And a lot of the facts that we choose are confirmed even by our own biases. This whole conversation really reminded me of George Lakoff's work on frame theory uh, that I studied in college. In the description of today's episode, I'll link to a blog post that George wrote uh, a while ago kind of explaining what frame theory is and how it applies to political discourse in particular, and I'll talk more about it in the expanded Patreon notes for this episode. What Celeste really focuses on in her work is changing views or having good conversations based on building strong relationships. And one of the best ways to actually make a difference in somebody's viewpoint 
or to just have a more productive conversation with them, is by forming an empathic bond with them on some level. She gave a number of examples of this based on finding even small points of commonality between yourself and another person. We then talked for a while about some of the challenges that even very smart and educated people can face inside of conversations. And one point that really resonated with me in particular, as you might imagine, was to be careful about how you're listening to what someone else is saying. Are you coloring your view of what they're saying with all the other times that you heard somebody else express a similar view? Or are you thinking really specifically about what they're saying in this moment to you? Are you really listening, or are you just waiting for your next opportunity to talk? We also talked for a little while about identity and emotion, and Celeste made a really interesting point about the difference between having an emotion and being an emotion. The difference between saying, I am feeling angry, versus saying, I am angry. And I think that a lot of what Celeste was saying today really boiled down to this idea of increasing the space between a stimulus and a response, which is a favorite topic of mine. Finally, I raised some questions about both sides-ism. Just because there are two different viewpoints doesn't mean that those viewpoints are both equally right. This is something that you see in cable news a lot, where there are two talking heads up on a screen arguing different viewpoints, but one of those talking heads has 97% scientific validation behind what it is saying, and the other one doesn't. What do you do when you feel like somebody else is arguing in bad faith in this manner? And in my opinion, just to give a little bit of personal viewpoint here, if you start to remove facts from the conversational equation entirely, my viewpoint here is that you can start perpetuating a lot of very, very problematic beliefs. But I think that what Celeste was speaking to is the difference between what might be called policy talk at a national level versus relational talk with another person, where you're trying to have a good conversation with them. But that said, once again, a lot of the time just giving somebody more information isn't enough to actually change their opinion. That change is going to be driven through relationship. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Celeste. If you have been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Also, if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can subscribe to our Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. As I've mentioned a couple of times now, I pulled together expanded show notes for each episode. Uh, Celeste was referencing a lot of research and making a lot of really nuanced arguments about things, and I'm sure that I will be exploring those things in more detail in the show notes. Finally, you can find us all over social media. We're at Being Well Podcast on Instagram, and Rick and I both have our own personal accounts on Instagram and Facebook. That's all for today. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. It really does mean a lot to me. And I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>